You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to encourage you to turn once again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and as always, we do have our uh, notes for today accessible in our Google Drive, which you can find information about how to do that in our bulletin, Um, but there is information there. Um, for you if you'd like to follow along or access the notes at a later time. All right, Revelation chapter 3, we come to the end of the uh, letters to the churches. So I want to turn our attention once again to verse 14. We're going to read through the text again, even though we've done so already this morning. Um, For those that weren't in here with us when we did that, I want to read it again. So we'll start reading in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is our seventh church that we've talked about um, in getting into the book of Revelation. We talked uh, through the letter to the people at Ephesus and reminded uh, ourselves that Uh, being busy with church things isn't necessarily what Jesus is looking for. It's the motivation and the attitude and mindset behind that activity. And we were reminded that love is so important when we are serving within the church. Smyrna was looked at, a church that was undergoing uh, great suffering and persecution, and and God prepares them and says even more is to come in the future, so be prepared. Uh, We looked at Pergamum, a church that allowed sin and compromise to infiltrate the church, and Jesus threatened to come and to to bring judgment and discipline upon that church. Thyatira, a very similar church in the same sense that um, it had compromised as well, and so it had seen good growth, but there had been compromise within that growth, and they are called to repentance as well. Sardis, a church that was viewed as a dying church that was challenged to wake up. And then last week, we looked at the church at Philadelphia, a church that was faithful Um, and that that faithfulness, God wanted to honor that, and Jesus wanted to give them greater opportunity for influence within their community. And Jesus even promises that despite the fact that they had little power and little influence at the time, because they had kept Christ's word, because they had not denied Christ's name, Jesus was going to increase their effectiveness, and people were going to get saved because of them, specifically a group of Jews that were persecuting them. And those Jews were going to be converted and see the Gentiles and see the church as the true people of God. And the application we had last week, are there opportunities that I need Christ to open for me? Because he's certainly the, the, the God of the doors of opportunity, and he opens up these opportunities for the church at Philadelphia. And so we talked through the fact that there may be opportunities that you need in your life that we can pray and ask Christ to open for you, leading us now into Laodicea. Laodicea, a church that we're going to see today, their ineffectiveness makes Jesus sick. Their ineffectiveness makes Jesus sick. Our summary sentence for today, a church that loses its effectiveness, loses its right to exist unless it repents and returns to a zealous attitude for good works that serve Christ's kingdom. A church that loses its effectiveness, loses its right to exist unless it repents and returns to a zealous attitude for good works that serve Christ's kingdom. That's where Laodicea finds itself. It's a church that has lost its effectiveness based on choices that they've made. And Jesus is now telling them they have lost their right to exist unless they respond to his call of repentance. 
and he calls them to repent, not just in words only, but in attitude, in actions, that they are to have a zealousness for their repentance. And they're to return to good works that serve Christ's kingdom. For our kids, Jesus wants us to serve him with our best effort and our best attitude. Jesus wants us to serve him with our best effort and our best attitude. We're going to talk a lot about lukewarmness today. And Jesus desires us to be putting on full effort with the right attitude in our good works towards him. Some introductory notes as you're continuing to write down our summary sentence for today. Um, I found it really interesting in studying this church that this church has a connection to the ministry of Paul. In Colossians chapter 1, Laodicea is mentioned several times in the letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 7, we learn about a man named Epaphras. says, um, Let's start in verse 5. It says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is talking to the people at Colossus. These are people that have heard the gospel, right? Paul is writing this uh, letter to the Colossians. It says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul references this man by the name of Epaphras as being a co-laborer, one who has worked extensively with the people at Coloss and has really helped them to understand the gospel. Fast forward into the book of Colossians to chapter 4, and we see Epaphras' direct dealings with uh, the church at Laodicea. It says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So this guy has been laboring in these cities that are very close together. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Hierapolis, Colossus, and Laodicea are located within just you know, 10 to 12 miles of each other, okay? And so this guy, Epaphras, is working with Paul. He's a co-laborer, and he's helping these churches understand the gospel. He's a discipler. He may be a pastor, a church planter. He's responsible for the early growth of some of these churches. This is the only church, Laodicea, to receive zero commendation. There's nothing good mentioned about this church. Nothing good at all. Even in some of the churches that we've seen heavy condemnation, we still get a a remnant, a few that are doing the right thing, but not here. (coughs) This church is condemned by Jesus across the board. Nothing to recognize as being good. The city of Laodicea was wealthy, and it was wealthy due in large part to their textile industry, their, (coughs) their clothing industry that they were making clothes and making a lot of money off those clothes, specifically black wool, all right? And that's going to obviously tie into the fact that Jesus talks to them about buying white garments, right? So they're known for their black wool or their black garments, and now they're being told to purchase white garments. They've made a fortune off of black clothing, all right? Um, They are also uh, wealthy due to their school of medicine, their school of medicine, specifically an eye solution that they've come up with, Uh, as a form of medicine for treating eye issues. So they've developed this in their city, which again ties into the fact that Jesus tells them, you need to buy my eye solution, right? Like there's a spiritual blindness that's occurring in your life. You need to purchase these items from me, right? You've got a church that's got a lot of gold. You've got a church that's got a lot of clothing. You've got a church that's got plenty of medicine. And Jesus says, you know what? You need to purchase gold from me. You need to purchase your clothing from me and your eye solution from me. Okay, so he's identifying the fact that what they have is insufficient. Jesus even references the fact that they are a, uh, a prideful church in the sense that they claim self-sufficiency, right? It says in um, verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, right? Like we're self-sufficient, we don't need help from anybody. That ties into the fact that the city was destroyed previously by an earthquake, I believe in AD 60, and when Rome, who the leader, the leader of the empire, offers to help Laodicea, offers to help them rebuild, they decline Rome's offer. They say, you know what? We've got plenty of resources. We've got plenty of ways to do this ourselves. And they decline the offerings of Rome. In fact, 
extra biblical historians write about the fact that Laodicea was very intentional to decline help from anyone else. That city attitude had kind of infiltrated the church attitude to where the church is saying, we don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. All right. Um, the city lacked a sufficient water supply. I think I heard one of the groups talking about this. They had to pipe in their water from the other two cities that were close. We mentioned Hierapolis and Coloss. Hierapolis was known for their hot springs. Okay? They, they had hot springs of water that would spill out in their city. And then Coloss was known for the cold springs of water. Okay? So you've got hot springs and cold springs. And these waters were piped in to the city of Laodicea. Now, now, you can imagine that in piping in this water, obviously the temperature, the temperature uh, starts to meet a happy medium in the middle, right? Science would tell us that hot water will eventually cool to a lukewarmness, that cold water will eventually warm up to a, a, a lukewarmness, right? And so that's what happens. They start piping this stuff in, and it ends up being just kind of a, a lukewarm, room-temperature type water. And it would bring in sediment with it, to the point that when a traveler showed up who wasn't aware of the conditions of the water, maybe would reach down to drink of it and would spew it out of its mouth. That it was, it was not good to the taste. The temperature wasn't good. The stuff that was in the water wasn't good. It was not something that you were looking to drink before treating it. So you've got it piped in, but it's going to need to go some necessary treatment for it really to be tasteful to the human tongue. Okay, so that really sets the context for us understanding why is Jesus talking about buying gold and buying clothing and buying eye solution to this church? Well, it's a church that's prideful about their gold, their clothing, and their eye solution, right? Why is Jesus talking about them being neither hot nor cold and wanting to spew them out of, their, out of his mouth? It's because it's a city that's known for its water supply being distasteful. And Jesus compares them to something that, that was distasteful in their community. The church has been properly equipped to thrive. Right? We said Epaphras had been working extensively with these churches, but listen to this. This is what's really neat too. In Colossians 4.16, most of you probably know that the early letters to these churches were letters that were written to specific churches and then circulated to other churches, right? We read the church, the letter to Colossians, and we glean a lot from it, right? Even though we're not the church at Coloss, right? It was written to the Colossian people, but it has timeless implications for us as a local church ourselves, Paul writes the church, to, writes the church at Colossus this letter, but then he gives instructions in verse 16 of chapter 4 for them to circulate it. It says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So Paul says, hey, this stuff's not just for y'all. When you're done reading this, when you've, when, you've, when you've comprehended it, when you've computed the stuff that I've told you, when you're done with this letter, ship it to Laodicea and make sure the Laodiceans read it, okay? Um, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, we don't have the book of Laodicea in our Bibles, right? We don't turn in the New Testament to the, to the letter to the Laodiceans, It'd be great if we could, because I'm sure there's some great information there. But apparently it wasn't inspired and did not, uh, did not fit into God's plan for his word. Paul wrote a letter to the Laodicean people, just like he wrote to the people of Coloss. One of them ends up in the New Testament, one of them doesn't. But both are highly instructional for an early church and their growth and their discipleship. This church is not lacking in teaching. They've got Epaphras, who is one of Paul's co-laborers, working extensively in their church. They've got the letter to the Colossians early, right? Like they don't have to wait around long for it to circulate because they're the first on the stop for this letter after it leaves the Colossian people. And on top of that, they've already gotten a letter from Paul themselves that they're supposed to send to the people of Coloss when they're done with it. So they've got extensive teaching. They are set up and equipped to thrive. And yet when Jesus shows up on the scene here in Revelation, they are far from thriving, okay? So that kind of sets the context a little bit for this church and why Jesus uses some of the language that he uses. Now, I want to kind of pick apart a little bit of the things from the text, but I really want to move quickly and get to the application point of today's sermon because I think the application point is meaty in what implications it has for us as individuals within this church, okay? And I really want, us to, I really want to see us do something with the application of today's instructions. All right, so let's get right into it within our text. Number one, as we look at the church at Laodicea, 
The description of Jesus reminds us that the assessment of this church will be accurate and true. The assessment of this church will be accurate and true. For our kids, Jesus always sees things like they really are. Jesus always sees things like they really are. Going back to our text, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We're given three descriptive phrases or titles here for Jesus who is writing this letter to the church at Laodicea. First of all, he is identified as the Amen. He is identified as the amen. The word amen, we use it in in the context of when we conclude our prayers. Sometimes we may use it in a sermon when someone is preaching and we really uh, feel compelled to respond to what's being said and there's a a bursting forth of agreement within our hearts. We may shout out amen. Um, There's other passages in scripture after Psalms and after different laments where amen is used kind of to solidify that message. It's an idea that Uh, or it's a word that conveys the ideas of truth, stability, certainty. It's used as a uh, a phrase to mean, let it be so. But it's also an Old Testament name for God. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. Now, our translations are not going to show it this way. But in Isaiah 65, 16, God the Father is described as the amen. It says, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. That term, that phrase, that name, the God of truth, correlates with this name for Jesus here in the New Testament. He's the God of the amen in the Old Testament, God the Father. Here in the New Testament, we see Jesus claiming this title for himself. It's another nod to the fact that Jesus is divine, right? That he is God incarnate. He is God in flesh. He's not less than God. He's not a different God. He is the same God of the Old Testament, now revealed to us in the New Testament in bodily form, right? He is the the second person of the Trinity. And this title reminds us of that because in the Old Testament, the the children of Israel see God, Yahweh, as the God of amen. And in the New Testament, Jesus claims that title for himself. He is the ultimate, let it be so. So when we think of Jesus in terms of this, this title here as the amen, he's truth, he's stability, he's reliability, right? As he begins to convey to this church who they are, And what they need to do, it is coming from a truthful source, from a stable source, from a reliable source. All right, secondly, he is the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. Now, this references back as each introduction to these letters do to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus reveals himself. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the faithful witness. He possesses the true word from God. Jesus witnesses to the fact that God has sent him with a specific word. And he's coming with a word to this church at Laodicea. He's the faithful witness. It's a true word from God. But number three, Jesus is also identified as the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. Now it'd be wrong for us to then assume that Jesus is created by God the Father as though he is the first creation of God. That's not how the phrase is used in Scripture. Um, It means that he is the originator of the creation of God, that he's the primary agent that God uses to create what we see. If we go back to Colossians, remember, the Laodiceans have read Colossians. The Laodiceans have studied Colossians. They've been given that letter, so it makes sense that this phrase probably ties in with what we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Talking about Jesus and his preeminence, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
He's the firstborn of creation. He's the originator of God's creation. He's the one that God creates through, right? But then there's this also idea that Jesus is the first fruits of God's new creation, right? We see it in Colossians here where it talks about him being the firstborn from the dead. But if we jump back to Revelation chapter one, which is probably what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about being the firstborn or the beginning of creation. Back in verse five, he describes himself as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So I think we see both aspects here of Jesus, that he was there in the beginning, as John 1.1 says, right? Jesus Christ does not come into existence when he is born into a manger, right? He's always existed as God, but his humanity begins to exist when he takes on the form of, of a servant there at the, the first Christmas season, right? So he's the, the, the first of creation in that God uses him to create, but he's also the first fruits of the new creation, He's the one who gets his glorified body first. He's the one that we now look to for our hope as to what we have coming in the future. Jesus ties that in as well. So he's the amen. He's the truth, the stability, the certainty. He's the faithful witness. He comes with a word from God, a true word from God. And he's the beginning of God's creation. He's the originator. He's the firstborn of God's new creation, which implies to us as we look at this assessment, get our notes back up there, As we look at this assessment of Laodicea, that Jesus is always dependable. We can trust what he says based on who he is. Jesus is always dependable. We can trust what he says based on who he is. Which not only gives context to what he's about to say to Laodicea, but ultimately to to everything that God's word has to say to us. All the promises that we see in scripture are wrapped up in the amen of Jesus, right? We learn that in the New Testament, that all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus, who is the amen. All right, so he's dependable. We can rely upon his word as being accurate and true, which brings us to that evaluation that he gives of the church at Laodicea. And the evaluation is surprising and sickening. The evaluation of this church is surprising and sickening. For our kids, the church at Laodicea was not as good as they thought they were. The church at Laodicea was not as good as they thought they were. This evaluation is surprising and sickening. As he does with all the churches, he says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, this is exactly probably the opposite of what Laodicea would have expected to hear. Remember, as they start to read these letters for the very first time, they're the last on the list, and so they've read about the church at Ephesus, they've read about the church at Smyrna, they've read about the church at Sardis, and inside them, they may be saying amen, amen, amen to those churches. Those churches have things to be fixed. And they may have even anticipated there's probably some things that need to be fixed in our church, but certainly not the things that Jesus actually ends up mentioning, right? Because this, in their mind, would have been their strength. And Jesus calls them out and says, you think that you're wealthy. I mean, this, in our terminology, may have been the church that had all of the resources, had all of the buildings, had all of the ministries, were very rich in their resources. It's a wealthy town. It's a wealthy city. And this church was probably very wealthy on the inside as well. Jesus says, you're poor. You're poor. You're pitiable. You you need help. You're, you're You're not okay. You're sick, right? You need clothing. You need gold. You need eye solution." The things that they were priding themselves on are the very things that Jesus identifies as issues for them. And it would have been very surprising to them because they're saying the exact opposite about themselves, right? They're saying, we're rich, we've prospered, we need nothing. Jesus says, you're poor, not rich. You're blind and you're naked. He says, you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. Let's look at the two ways that Jesus identifies them. First, he identifies them as being lukewarm. He says, you're lukewarm. Your works are neither hot nor cold. He's stating to them that they had lost all of their effectiveness. They had become useless, meaning that nothing good was being done with them. This church had lost its effectiveness. They were having no effect on the people 
around them. Now, there's two different ways of viewing this hot, cold, lukewarm type perspective. Um, And commentators are kind of split on which one Jesus really had in mind here. Option number one would be the one that we're probably most familiar with. The idea that they were neither enthusiastically supportive about Jesus, meaning that they were not on fire hot, nor did they openly oppose him or deny him, meaning that they weren't cold either. That's probably how we're most familiar with understanding this passage, that, that they weren't enthusiastically gung-ho on fire for Jesus. And so Jesus says, you're not hot. But they weren't in the cold category either, where they were resistant or in opposition to Jesus. They weren't enemies of Jesus, as though they were cold. They were just kind of in the middle. Like they called themselves Christians. They named Jesus as their Savior. They did some things for Jesus, but they wouldn't be defined as on fire but they're not in the category of of lost, heathen, uh, rebellious type people either. That's probably how most of us have understood you're not hot, you're you're not cold, you're lukewarm. But that's kind of confusing when Jesus says, I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm, right? Because in our minds, we would think, well, being lukewarm is closer to hot than cold, so why would Jesus say it's better to be cold than lukewarm? If this option is correct, though, I think we can understand it in terms of it's easier, and, and as, a, as a pastor, as a, as a teacher, as a minister, I, I can attest to the fact that I think it's easier sometimes to reach those that are in the cold category than in the lukewarm category. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, talking about those that have rejected uh, truth, it says, for it would, have been, uh, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And Peter says it would be better for them to have never heard it than to have heard it and rejected it. Um, Sometimes, as teachers at Trinity, we talk, um, it's not uncommon for us to fill a a lukewarm-type flavor within the, the attitude of our students, right? These are kids that have grown up in church. They've grown up in Christian school. They've sat through countless Bible classes, countless chapels. They've heard it. They've heard it. They've heard it, right? It's not uncommon to hear a teacher say, Sometimes it's refreshing to to minister in the public school system because you're not dealing with lukewarm kids that have heard it, heard it, heard it. You're talking about kids that haven't heard it yet, and it's far more um, easy to reach those type of kids because you're exposing them to it for the very first time. That may be what Jesus has in mind here, that it would be better for you to be in opposition because at least then I could wake you up to it easier. It would be easier to show you that you're not hot because you're cold right? Lukewarm is kind of an in-between, and there's probably different levels of what even lukewarm is, right? I mean, if we're talking about the temperature of a shower, some of us would say the shower is hot, but others of us would say it needs to be hotter. I like my shower more hot than what it currently is. Or some of us could step in and say this this shower is cold, and it simply be lukewarm, right? Lukewarm can be defined in different ways, and it can be felt and experienced in different ways. Jesus says it'd be better for you to be cold completely because then maybe we could reach you and move you towards hotness because it would be obviously evident that you're cold versus simply being lukewarm. That's how most of us have understood it. But the other option is that it's actually good to be cold as a Christian and good to be hot, that both have an effective use for his kingdom. So option number two is that they are neither bringing about healing for spiritual, for spiritual sick people, the hotness, nor refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. The cold factor. See, these hot springs in uh, Heropolis were used for medicinal purposes. The, the hot water was used to help bring healing to those that were sick. The cold water in Coloss was used for a different purpose. It was used for refreshment. It's the type of water that you want to drink and be refreshed when you're thirsty. Both had different uses. Both were effective in different ways. Both were needed to accomplish different purposes. And Jesus says here, potentially, you're, you're not effective in either one of these aspects. It would be better if you were hot so that you could be a church that, that offers help to those that are sick and in need, or it'd be better if you were cold and you were effective to those that were spiritually thirsty, needing to be refreshed, but you're neither. You're neither. You've lost your effectiveness. You're lukewarm. There's really no use for lukewarm water. Think about it in terms of how we use water. Most of the time, we're looking to either heat it up or cool it off for it to be useful to us right? We're not, we're not often using lukewarm water. And if it is, it's certainly not going into our mouth typically, right? 
So we're, we're usually heating it up to make it more useful to us, or we're cooling it off to make it more useful to us. And Jesus says, you would be better off being either one of those. Both are used for different purposes. I wish that you were either of these, but you're neither of them. You're kind of in the middle. You're lukewarm, and you have no effectiveness. The church is lukewarm. But secondly, Jesus describes them as being poor, blind, and naked. The church is poor, it's blind, and it's naked. Rather than being without need, they find themselves in desperate need. Remember, Jesus says they describe themselves as having need of nothing, even to the point that they've left Jesus out of the things that they're doing. But John 15, 5 reminds us how desperately we are in need of Jesus if we're to do anything. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we're to produce fruit, if we're to produce good works that matter, it has to be outsourced in Jesus. It has to be flowing from Jesus. Otherwise, we can do nothing that matters. And that's certainly where this church had fallen into. They were doing anything and everything, but it didn't matter. Their effectiveness was lost because in their minds, they didn't need Jesus. They didn't need anything. They were self-sufficient in their minds. And then we see Jesus come in and attack the very areas that they thought to be their strong points, right? Areas that they had placed their security in, their money, their clothing, and their health. They were rich. Why? Because they were selling black wool. They were rich. Why? Because they had medicine, specifically for their eyes and ears. They were known for this, and Jesus identifies these areas and attacks these areas of security for them. And then Jesus calls them to make an unconventional purchase, right? Think about it. Jesus identifies these people as being poor. They've invested their money in the wrong places. He says, you're poor. You're wretched. You're blind. You're naked, meaning you don't have anything of value. And then in verse 18, what does he tell them to do? I counsel to you to buy from me gold, white garments, and eye solution. And if you're reading this, you're thinking, well, how am I supposed to buy any of that? Right? Like, it shouldn't, shouldn't come cheap because I've invested a lot of money in what I currently have, and you're telling me now that it has no value. Right? You're basically telling me I've wasted a lot of time and energy obtaining things that are of no value, and now you're telling me to go purchase things in a state of poverty. Right? You're, you're pitiful, you're, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you don't have anything to offer, and yet the very thing that I'm supposed to do now is to go purchase things from you. Right? And I think probably Jesus has in mind Isaiah 55.1, another passage where individuals are told to purchase things in an unconventional way. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Right? It's this idea that you can only purchase from the market of Jesus when you don't have anything to purchase with. Like that, that's kind of the prerequisite here is that you come empty-handed. You come in your poverty. You come realizing your poor condition to gain the things that you need, and you have absolutely nothing to offer in return. Like that's, how the, that's how the marketplace works for Jesus and his kingdom, is that we come to buy in a state of poverty. We come to buy when we have nothing of value, and it's freely given to us. That's the picture in Isaiah 55. That's the picture in Revelation 3. Jesus says, you need to come get the things that matter, the things that are of true value. Come purchase these things, but don't come purchasing them with the things that you have. You come realizing that you don't have anything to purchase with, and that's how you purchase in my kingdom. That's how you purchase in my marketplace. So Jesus tells them to come in a state of poverty, much like God the Father does in Isaiah 55 to his people, and says, come and purchase milk and wine when you have no money, when you can't meet the price that's when you can obtain these things. And Jesus tells this church at Laodicea to do the very same thing. He tells them they are in need of spiritual riches. He says, come by gold refined by fire. They need spiritual riches. They're rich in material things, but they're impoverished in spiritual things. This is perhaps a reference to 1 Peter 1.7. When we think of gold, obviously we don't need gold. Uh, this is used in a spiritual context. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, we may get a better idea of what Jesus has in mind. It says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus tells them they need to purchase something of value that's been tested by fire. And time and time again in the New Testament, it's our faith that gets tested by fire and comes out on the other side with value. So it's probably a reference to the fact that they have, they've blurred the lines with their culture. They really haven't taken a hard stand like a hot or a cold believing church would have done, right? A hot and cold believing church, meaning that they have really stepped out to be effective. Or if we think about it in the other terms, they really aren't on fire in such a way that they've separated themselves from the world. And so their, their faith really hasn't been tested. They're not experiencing the persecution that some of these other churches have, right? There's no hint of persecution in this chapter. And they're not that far from some of these other churches. No persecution taking place. Why? Because their faith really hasn't been put to the test, really hasn't been tried by fire because they've not separated themselves from the world. Jesus says, you need that type of spiritual value. You need that type of spiritual riches. Something that's been tested by fire and found to be valuable after that testing process. Secondly, he says, you need white garments. White garments throughout the book of Revelation relays the idea of purity. Purity in order to avoid judgment and shame. There's two passages that I want to draw your attention to in regards to white garments, but there's multiple ones in Revelation we're going to see. But in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, it says, I said to him, sir, uh, or verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, right? The, the, the robes that these saints possess are white. How? Because Jesus' blood has washed them white, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an idea here or a nod here to what we understand to be justification, the idea that, that Jesus has given us his righteousness so that we can be declared righteous, not because of our good works, but because of the works of Christ, okay? So the gospel's tied into this. You need white garments. You need to be pure, now, this is, a, this is a Christian church, so it's not talking about you need to be saved, but there is an aspect of purity here. And so if they already possess the righteousness of Jesus, why would he then say that they're white, their garments need to be white? Well, if you look ahead in Revelation to Revelation 19, 8, we see white robes pop up again. As Jesus is coming to the, the marriage supper, We'll start in verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself, what? With fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, right? We're given Jesus's righteousness. So we're clothed in white because Jesus is perfect. But we know that, that Ephesians tells us that what? We weren't just saved to, to sit and wait for Jesus. We were saved for good works, right? We were saved to work and to perform good deeds for Jesus now that we've been redeemed by the works of Jesus. We're, we're now to perform good works. And this is where the good deeds tie into our white garments as well. We've got Jesus's clothing on, but then we're to maintain that purity, pursuing sanctification, and through the Holy Spirit's power, good deeds are being produced by us. And this church was in desperate need of good works being done. Jesus says, I know your good, I know your works, doesn't call them good. He says, I know your works, and I found them to be lukewarm, and you need to purchase white garments from me. Then lastly, he says, I need spiritual, they need to purchase spiritual discernment. He says, you need to purchase eye solution from me. He says, I know you're, you're good at making eye solution for the body, but you need to purchase spiritual eye solution from me. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This picture here of Christians clinging to the promises of God so that they can escape. Uh, it says that having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How do we fight sin? We cling to the promises of God. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is what? Blind 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Jesus says, you guys are spiritually blind. You're not growing in your faith like you're supposed to be. You're not adding to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to self-control and to all these things that are listed here. He says, you're not doing these things and you've, you've resorted to a, spir- a state of spiritual blindness once again. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. And he calls this church to be reminded of this reality. They've been blinded to what's really true about them. They don't see themselves for what they truly are. And you'll remember we've talked that the goal of Revelation is to help one really see what is going on, and this church especially needed this. We've already seen in uh, chapter 1 and 2 that Christ is clothed with gold. He's white like wool, and he has flaming eyes, which points to all three of these aspects for this church, meaning that Christ is their answer to their greatest problems. The implication for us, in order for true change to occur, there must be a self-realization that change is needed. If this church is going to stop being lukewarm and either become hot or cold, if cold is good in this context, which I think it probably is, so I lean more towards option two that, that Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be effective as cold or effective as hot, but not be lukewarm in the middle. In order for one to get out of a state of lukewarmness, it necessitates that that individual or that church realize that change is needed. And this is a hard thing, I think, to realize. It's hard for someone to think and realize that they're lukewarm because lukewarm can argue that it's cool. Lukewarm can argue that it's warm, right? Like it's in the middle. It can be hot to some people. It can be cold to some people. And it's very hard to convince lukewarm water that it's lukewarm. But in order for true change to occur, there must be a self-realization that change is needed, which brings us now to Jesus' correction for this church. So Jesus assesses this church, and it's surprising and sickening to him because he says that it's uh, the type of church and the type of works that are being done is what he wants to spew out of his mouth. Right? He wants to vomit this church up in the same way that travelers would vomit the water up that they taste in Laodicea. He's not pleased with their works. He's not pleased with their lukewarmness. He says, buy these things from me, right? And then he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Some really important implications here for our kids. Jesus gives the worst people the chance to repent. Jesus gives the worst people the chance to repent because this is the worst church that we've looked at and they've been given the chance to repent. First of all, their failure did not have to be final. Their failure did not have to be final. And I think it's really important to identify these people as Christians and not lost people. Why? Because Jesus says, I love them, I reprove them, and I discipline them. Those are words that are used for believers, right? This isn't a lost lost group of people here because Jesus doesn't discipline people that are illegitimate children, right? Like he disciplines his kids, right? So these are, these are believers here, right? He says, I love these people. I reprove these people. I discipline these people. He loves them enough to warn them and call them to repentance. The bleakest message that we've seen. Jesus says, I want to throw you people up. The worst message possible comes to this church and tacked on to the end of it is you have a chance to fix this. You can repent and turn this situation around. He loves them enough to warn them and call them to repentance. He loves them enough to correct them and to discipline them. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 is one passage where we see this, this mindset. I'm only going to read Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 because it quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, but it's found in two places here in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter um, 12, verses 5 and 6, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Right? This is God interacting with his children. It's divine discipline. It's divine correction. And we see the idea that this is a good thing. This isn't something to be rejected. This isn't something to be hated. This is a good thing. This is a a token that you are truly uh, uh, a possession of God. In Psalm chapter 94, verse 12, Psalm chapter 94, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Job chapter 5, verse 17 
Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. Divine discipline is a good thing for believers, right? It says, um, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world, right? This is part of Jesus protecting us from final condemnation. He disciplines his children. He corrects his children to what? Make sure they persevere to the end. That's what Jesus does for his people. He loves them enough to correct them. Despite the repulsed feelings that Jesus has, he only threatens to spew them rather than promising to do so. Right? He's ready to reject these people, but he hasn't done it yet. Right? There's still a way to not be spewed out. Right? He, says, um, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth, but he hasn't done so yet. There's still the chance for this to be reversed. Despite the harsh condemnation, Jesus extends a warm invitation to repent and a promise for doing so. So their, their failure did not have to be final. And number two, their future was contingent on their response. Jesus appeals for a human response to his invitation of repentance. He stands and knocks. And in this context, specifically, he is standing and knocking towards believers to repent. Sometimes this is used as a passage that that is supposed to be a gospel passage of how Jesus approaches a non-believer. This is in the context of believers, right? This is the context of Jesus knocking at a believer's heart here, asking to be let in. They essentially had spewed Jesus out of the church, right? Jesus says, I want to spew you out. These guys had already been guilty of spewing Jesus out, and Jesus is trying to knock and get back in. He's now being called to, to, to welcome himself back in, or he's going to spew them out. And here's the key. Don't, don't, don't think that Jesus has set his sovereignty aside or his authority aside and is standing like a lost traveler trying to find refuge in somebody's heart, right? In James chapter 5, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Why? Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's not a matter of whether he's coming in or not. It's a question of what he does once he is in, right? Jesus is knocking and the opportunity is to repent and to let him in willingly. And what's the result? Intimate fellowship with him, right? Jesus says, if, I, if the door is opened, I will come in and I will dine with that individual. I will fellowship with that individual. But there's also the, the harsh reality that if the door is not opened, Jesus is still coming in. He's coming in with judgment. In Luke chapter 12, verse 36 Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks, right? Jesus isn't trying to knock on our door like it's our house and wants to know if he can come visit, right? He's the master and he's returned and he's knocking and saying, hey, I'm home, let me back in, right? It says, be ready for when the master comes home from the wedding feast so that he may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Trust, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That same picture of intimate eating and fellowship. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's either coming as the master to dine and to fellowship or he's coming like a thief and he will break in if necessary, right? The call is to repent. It's kind of, the, in my mind as I'm studying this, I'm thinking police sometimes will show up and knock and give the option for the person to be let in or sometimes they're gonna come in with full force if the door is not open for them, right? They have the right to come in. They've got the documentation that says we're coming in but we're gonna, we're gonna do you the right of letting you let us in and it's gonna be a far better process if the door is opened and they're allowed to come in versus being forceful entry, right? Jesus is coming. Jesus is the master, and he is knocking and giving these people the opportunity to repent. He promises intimate fellowship. He promises the chance to reign with him for those that conquer. Back to our text, and we'll wrap up with this last implication. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
No matter how far we fall, total inclusion and reinstatement into God's promises exist for the one that will repent. Right? Like, that's what's so great about this. <laughs> He's got the worst, bleakest message for this church. I'm going to vomit you people, unless you repent. And if you repent, you get everything that you're supposed to get. Right? Like, like they've really messed up. They've really failed. But Jesus says, repent, come back to me. Fellowship can be restored. You can conquer. You can reign with me. You can eat with me. Right? The worst failures can still end good. That's the type of God we serve. It's the type of Jesus that we serve. Right? Comes at a cost in the sense that we have to come in humility. We have to come repenting. We have to come saying, I don't have anything to offer, right? Like, I'm here to buy gold, but I don't have any money. I'm here to buy a white garment, don't have any money. I'm here to buy some eye solution so I can see better and have better spiritual discernment. I don't have any money for this. Jesus says, oh, great, that's the type of person I do business with, right? Like, here, here's the garments, here's the gold, here's the, the eye solution. No matter how far we fall, total inclusion and reinstatement into God's promises exist for the one that will repent. All right, before I give you my, our, our application questions, in our discussion groups this morning, we talked about what, um, what does it look like for a Christian to be lukewarm? The second question or the third question was, should we address lukewarmness in the life of a believer? Hopefully, we can see how serious God takes lukewarmness to know, ding, 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 that if we see this happening, it should, abso- it should absolutely be addressed by a fellow believer. Why? Because if not, they're going to be spewed out of Jesus' mouth. If not, they're going to reject the knocking at the door. If not, they're going to stay blinded to their situation. So it should absolutely be addressed. But how do we recognize it? What does it look like? How would you describe a Christian that is lukewarm? I want to get some feedback on that, but I want to get it in the terms of our application questions for today. Number one, what potential areas of your life might cause someone to think that you are lukewarm? This is where I said the application is kind of hard for today because I need some self-assessment by you towards yourself. If you were put on trial this morning, right? Church at Laodicea was put on trial and the amen showed up, right? The the beginning of creation showed up. The true witness, the faithful witness showed up and he assessed this church and said, you're lukewarm. I've seen your works. I know your works. It's lukewarm at best. What if you were on trial this morning? What if you were being assessed by the amen this morning? What if you were being assessed by other people in this church this morning? And the question was, are you hot, cold, or lukewarm? What potential areas of your life might cause someone to think that you're lukewarm? Number two, what potential areas of your life would show that you are indeed not lukewarm? So we're talking about weak areas? Strong areas? Number three, are you willing to ask others in our church what they think about you in case you're blinded to your condition? Now, this is where you're coming poor and blind and in poverty to somebody and saying, hey, I want you to be honest with me, and and I'm willing to receive your honesty towards me. Because here's the thing, Laodicea didn't think they were lukewarm, right? Like they wouldn't have described themselves that way, right? We're rich. Like we don't need anything. We're prosperous. Jesus says you're blind. You don't, you don't understand reality. You don't understand the condition that you're in. Which leads me to think that if I'm guilty of being lukewarm, I'm probably not aware of it. I'm probably not aware of it, which means... I'm probably not even sure how to answer question number one because I probably don't see the areas that would make me lukewarm in the eyes of somebody else. Now, maybe through conviction in today's sermon, you're more aware of, of areas that would be answered to number one. But prior to walking in today, hey, are you lukewarm? No, that's other people, not me. And in somebody else's mind, it might be, eh, 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 this area, this area, I would, I would call you lukewarm. And you just don't know it because you're blinded to it. But maybe there's some potential areas of your life that would show that you're not lukewarm. But I think the kicker is, are you willing to ask others, in case you're blinded to your condition, whether or not your perce- the perception of others is that you're lukewarm or not? This is, a great, this is a great discussion to have within accountability groups. 
And even if you're not prepared to really dig down and decide if you are or aren't lukewarm, even being honest enough to say, here's what I would look like if I were lukewarm, right? Like, like that can be healthy too. Maybe you're not willing to really dig in and say, okay, this area, this area, this area may mean that I'm lukewarm. Maybe you're still blinded to it and you're saying, you know what, I'm not lukewarm. But if I were to ever be lukewarm, here's what it would look like. Like that can be healthy too for you to self-identify and be self-aware that to, uh, to cool off or to warm up um, in such a way that you've reached a level of lukewarmness, this is what it would look like in your life. Any specific thoughts that you guys had on, on what a lukewarm Christian looks like? And we'll kind of wrap up with this. Any specific characteristics? Yep. Uh, a loss of desire to know God, I would say. Uh, just like this true desire to continue to pursue the things of God. Right, a loss of desire to know God and to pursue the things of God. Any other thoughts that came up in your group? We talked a little bit about um, kind of a contentment in a very shallow Christianity. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes to you and say, you know, tell me about your faith, well, I got a church. A typical response. Mm-hmm. And it's more of they're describing where they go on Sunday and Wednesday nights as opposed to their relationship with Jesus. Okay, kind of a contentment level with simply being a church goer um, when they talk about their faith and that being enough. I would think, especially on that last comment you made about the church thinking they're one thing and then not seeing it, they're probably dismissive of feedback. Maybe initially, I don't know. But yep, dismiss, dismissal of feedback. I'd say like areas of your life where you're trying to be God rather than trust Him. Okay, areas where you're trying to be God rather than trust Him. If we're tying it back to the idea of effectiveness, right? Like hot water's effective, cold water's effective, lukewarm water is not in this context, then I think, too, it needs to be tied to how effective are you within this church? What are you doing that is classified as being an effective part of this church? And if there's not much there, then maybe lukewarm status has been reached. Because you can't separate it and say, well, maybe there's not a lot going on here as far as me being effective, but like I've got some other things in the works over here that, that really would highlight my, my lack of lukewarmness. Because you can't separate your faith and your walk from involvement in a local church because the New Testament doesn't, right? This letter is written to local churches, not individual believers, because it's always just assumed in the New Testament that believers, individual believers, are in a local church and that they do it together as a local church. Right? So the effectiveness, I think, is a key component to our thought process here. And this is something that I'm kind of working through because certainly I'm not exempt from going through seasons of lukewarmness myself. And so I'm trying to evaluate in my own mind, what does it look like for me to be a lukewarm pastor? Right? Like, what does it look like for me to reach a level of lukewarmness as a leader and an elder within this church? And I would challenge our leadership as deacons and elders, too, to have this same mindset. What does it look like to be a lukewarm deacon, a lukewarm elder, a lukewarm church member? right? Like all of us need to be assessing this and evaluating this. What does it look like for me to be lukewarm if I'm indeed not lukewarm right now? What would have to change for me to then be lukewarm? And I think church attendance, church involvement, effectiveness within the things that we're doing within the church are all things that have to be considered as to whether or not you as an individual have reached lukewarm status or not. And let me tell you, a lukewarm church is made up a bunch of lukewarm individuals, right? Like that's how we become a lukewarm church is if a bunch of individuals le- reach lukewarm status in this church. Um, yep. I would also like to say that um, busyness is not necessarily an indicator. Right. Um, I could probably sit down with you for 30 minutes and tell whether you're lukewarm or not, because it's what, you know, it's like Jesus said, you know, out of the fullness of the heart you right. know, comes what I can't remember the exact wording. But anyway, um, I, I just, because there are some people who are very behind the scenes in a church. Mm-hmm. You know, they are maybe your prayers. They are your... And so I'm just saying, the people who are busiest in a church are not necessarily right. the most less people. That's not an excuse not to be busy. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But I'm just saying we can't judge each other based on exactly what we do. But if I, if I sat down with you for like an hour, I could tell 
probably how important Christ is in your life. Mm -hmm. If we really had a serious discussion, mm -hmm. it should come out mm -hmm. to me. And hopefully we would all have that perception of each other within our accountability groups. Hopefully that our accountability groups are meeting in such a way frequently enough to where we kind of have a spiritual gauge as to whether or not someone is um, growing and either heating up or cooling off as far as the effective aspect goes or whether there's kind of a lukewarm status that's been reached. I would, I kind of would go off that busyness aspect too. Um, one, like everybody classifies themselves as busy, so you really can't even use that as a token of, hey, I'm in the busy category, right? Like you don't ever talk to anybody that says I'm not busy, like, right? Everybody's busy. I would certainly cause those that, I would certainly want those that classify themselves as the busy of the busiest to really examine, am I busy with things within this local church, right? Like if you're going to be the busy type person, then it certainly would make sense that the local church involvement is causing some of the busyness, right? Like there's an involvement. So, so if you're just busy, 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 and it's not really tied to the church, then you, then you may have kind of forced him out, right? And he's knocking and saying, hey, I'm ready to come back in. I, I, I need you to open the door because you've kind of forced me out. You're busy doing a bunch of other things and you don't need anything according to you and, and you're busy with all the wrong things. Um, it's certainly an area that, that I want to challenge myself in because I certainly fall into the busy category just like every other person. But I certainly want to make sure that I'm busy with the right things if I'm going to label myself as a busy person, that I'm certainly busy with the business of the kingdom. All right? Um, so these are some points that I want you to think about. We're going to tie these in with our application Sunday next week as well. So um, encourage you to be pondering these things and really evaluating these things. And I would encourage these things to come up at your next accountability group. Um, what are some areas of your life that, that maybe would, would lend someone to think that you're lukewarm? And, and how do you fix that? Two, what are some areas in your life that would show that you're not lukewarm? Three, are you willing to ask others if they think you're lukewarm or not? Family worship questions for this week. Number one, what does it mean for a Christian to be lukewarm? Let's talk with our kids a little bit more about this concept so they can better understand. Number two, also number three, um, what are some ways our family can be more effective in our church? If we're going to tie lukewarmness to effectiveness, which I think is what Jesus is doing here with the hot and the cold, how can we as a family or you as an individual, how can you be more effective in this church? What are some things that you can do to be the hot healing presence or the cool, refreshing presence within this local church body, all right? Those are some questions that you can ponder in addition to those three application points um, as a means of worship this week. Any other thoughts or comments before we, we close out? Yep. I just think that the Second Peter passage that you read in chapter 1 is good for us to meditate on because it promises that by adding to these qualities in our life, it keeps us from getting ineffective. Yeah, that was Second uh, Peter 1, 3 through 11. Second Peter chapter 1, 3 through 11. So it's a, it's a serious thing that, that I hope you'll ponder as you leave because you can feel very good as lukewarm. Because when you're lukewarm, you're, you're just busy enough where it's probably hard for somebody to call you out for it. Like you're, you're involved and effective just enough to where you're probably not going to get called out for being lukewarm. And that's the harshest message that Jesus had in these letters is that you're the guy that makes it hard to be called out because you're just kind of sometimes there and sometimes involved and sometimes doing something, but you're not like, you're not really bought in, right? Like you're not, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're not that, that, that consistent, um, reliable presence that's needed within that local church to be healthy and successful, um, so I would encourage us all to ponder this because it's a hard thing to admit when you're lukewarm, um, but that's the first step in, in change taking place. Jesus says you're blind and you don't see it, and so you got to get help to see it. And he says you got to come buy some eye solution so that you can see it better if you're going to heat yourself up or cool yourself off. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this, this letter to the, the Laodicean people. Um, Lord, we're thankful for your honesty as the amen. You're certainly a true, faithful witness who comes and tells it like it is. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure this church was grateful for the wake-up call so that they could have that opportunity to repent and turn. Um, Lord, we know that they're a church that had all the, the necessary equipping. They had been taught by the best, and it still missed the point. So even though Epaphras and Paul had been very intentional to pour into this church, they had, they had cooled off or heated up to the point of lukewarmness, and they weren't being very effective anymore within their community. God, here we are talking about 
new buildings and relocations. And uh, Lord, none of that makes sense if we're not committed to seeing people come to Jesus and, and be saved. Um, God, we know that you don't want us simply to be a church that attracts other Christians to come be a part of our fellowship without also adding to the kingdom new people that get saved. Lord, we want to be effective. And if we're not going to be effective, then we need to wake up and realize that we don't need to exist, potentially. And so, Father, we certainly don't want to be spewed out of your mouth. We don't want to be a sickening presence to you based on our lukewarmness. So, God, I pray that all of us, elders all the way down to our kids that are in here this morning, that we would all evaluate our lukewarmness and whether we're being effective in this church in ways that you've equipped us to be effective. God, help us to self-assess ourselves. Help us to be humble enough to ask some other people that we're close to in this church to give us their self-assessment. Help us to be open enough to hear some criticism if needed, because uh, certainly that criticism is going to be better than being spewed out of your mouth. God, help us to realize that, that discipline and correction are good things, good things that you bring and good things that you use other people in our life to bring into our life. Help us not to, to hate or spurn your discipline or your correction if, it, if it's needed. God, help us to leave here ready to be honest with ourselves and to evaluate so that we can be the most effective church possible. Help us to repent where we need to repent. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.